This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome back to Mexico Moving Forward. I'm Laura Castaneda, your MC today. And this afternoon, we have um, some more great panelists. And we have two dignitaries with us this afternoon to give you some welcoming remarks for the afternoon sessions. We have uh, Remedios Gomez Arnau. She's the Mexico Consul General here in San Diego. She served for 13 years, six of those years right here in San Diego with us. She was academic secretary and associate researcher at the Center for Research on North America at UNAM, where her research interests included the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship. And along her side, we have Andrew Erickson. He's the U.S. Consul General in Tijuana. He oversees the activities of the consulate in Baja California and Baja California Sur. He has worked on political, economic, and multilateral affairs, as well as migratory affairs. So first, we would like to have the consul come up to the podium, either one of you, whoever wants to start. Thank you, Remedios. Thank you, Madam. I'm honored to join you here today. Um, this morning we've heard very different perspectives on Mexico moving forward, and I'm sure our panelists discussing Mexico on the move will further enrich this discussion this afternoon. In the next few minutes, I'd like to take us in a little different direction. I'd like us to think local and regional. First, the local. Our San Diego... Tijuana mega-region has long been the biggest shared border metropolis uniting our nations and people. But what about our region more broadly? As U.S. Consul General in Tijuana, my area of responsibility includes the states of Baja California and Baja California Sur. It's fortuitous I speak just before the Mexico on the Move panel because it turns out I've been on the move myself in the last couple of days. Yesterday, I returned from town hall meetings with Americans in Baja California Sur and was struck yet again by how quickly our transient West is evolving. It's not just demographics, although that's a big part of it. It's our geographical destiny of this region. Tijuana and San Diego have long been first cousins, linked by close proximity and mutual interdependence. Although this interdependence is often felt far more strongly south of the border, than north of it. This is an old reflex which needs to change. NAFTA has hugely accelerated the trend toward interdependence in this region, and our close proximity trumps border wait times, which I know are a theme of constant interest. So many of us with personal history in this part of California have roots and branches across the border. For some of us, these ties are familial. Others among us, among us have business connections and cross-border investments. Returning from Baja Sur yesterday, I'd like to take it a step further. We need to think in terms of the three Californias. Our U.S. California, north of the Tijuana River, and the two Mexican states of Baja California and Baja California Sur. I know some might reply, but Baja Sur is so far away. Tucson, Arizona is closer to Los Cabos than Tijuana is. And that's true. You should look at the map if you haven't. True enough, I reply, 
But more unites our three Californians all the time, and my consulate serves this huge community. Our first task is ensuring people can cross the border, work and thrive in the binational area. Our border performs a security function while facilitating the vast legitimate trade and transit in our area. I've been criticized for using this word, but I believe my consulate lubricates the border. <laughs> a few data points about the regional context to keep in mind. Just as California is increasingly Mexican-American, Baja California is increasingly American-Mexican. All who live and work here know the challenges of the border crossing. We know or should know that 19% of all the people who enter the U.S. anywhere on any given day enter through our local border crossings in the San Diego region. Nor should we forget that on any given day, between 8 and 9% of the state of Baja California, the people carry a U.S. passport in their pocket. For Baja California Sur, we estimate... Around 10% of the people there on any given day have American citizenship. This may even be a low estimate. While our total citizen presence, temporary and permanent, along the length of the Baja Peninsula, thus hovers around one person in 10, think about it, one person in 10, these populations have different characteristics. Northern Baja's population tends to be Mexican-American, people who carry both passports. The U.S. population of Baja Sur rarely has Mexican heritage, but American residents are increasingly putting down roots there. Some of these individuals are now taking Mexican citizenship. What does this mean for the future? Mexico on the move. The presence of so many Americans has led to steady growth in the need in Baja for U.S. citizen services. We have the biggest consular caseload of this type for any U.S. diplomatic establishment anywhere. Job one for us is ensuring that our many citizens in Baja get the U.S. government services they have a right to receive. We also give visitor visas to the United States, and in this category, we are the number 12th visitor visa post in the world. Again, we are the lubricant of our binational world. Here in the intersection of the three Californians, the three Californias, we constantly address the challenge of how does our government keep up with the growth. In my experience, people tend to think of consulates in terms of papers and problems. Our interactions, people's interactions with our consulates, tend to be, have the potential to be fraught with friction. Our papers include passports, green cards, visas, notarials. Our problems include arrests, missing people, illness, and worst of all, death. But we want to work to make things function more smoothly. Much of the work we do, we do with our federal partners. Beyond the paperwork, we help partner agencies connect across the border. We also work with our Mexican partners, and notably the consulate in San Diego, to protect our people in migration and law enforcement and family services. Many of our people have unique binational situations which are almost never seen anywhere else. We work with local governments. Just last week I attended a meeting hosted by the city of Chula Vista, uniting city officials from both sides of the border to discuss issues of common concern. And I salute Rudy Ramirez, who I see is in the audience here, and the mayor of Chula Vista for taking this initiative.
San Diego, Tijuana is the heart of the three Californias. Standing with me here, well, sitting with me here, is Remedios Gomez Arnau. Just as I have hundreds of thousands of Americans south of the border, she has her parallel population north of the border here in San Diego in her district. But it's not just about protecting our people. It's also about strengthening educational connections. President Obama in March 2011 announced the 100,000 Strong in the Americas initiative. As he put it then, and I quote, the United States will work with partners in this region, including the private sector, to increase the number of U.S. students studying in Latin America to 100,000, and the number of Latin American students studying in the United States to 100,000. We want many of these students to be from Mexico. We want many of these studies to be in Mexico. Then in May 9th of 2013, President Obama and President Peña Nieto announced the Bilateral Forum on Higher Education Research and Innovation. To move our focus beyond student mobility and to recognize the benefits flowing from increasing higher educational exchange and joint research and innovation, we want more Americans to study in Mexico. We want more Mexicans to study here. Most importantly, we want our scholars to think about shared challenges together. We want to foster a generation of future leaders who understand each other, who speak each other's language, and who know how to work together so that our two countries can prosper. We work with our Mexican partners in and out of government to promote this vision. Ladies and gentlemen, given our setting here today at UC San Diego, I'd love to have the chance to speak to any of you individually about what we can do to make this vision of shared innovation, shared research, and helping more American students study in Mexico a reality. Yes, there is a travel warning. But there are wonderful opportunities in Mexico and in my consular district. And we'd love to talk about getting people together with the right resources. Our travel warning doesn't say, don't go. It says, inform yourself before you go. Talk to us about it if it's an obstacle to you. Other speakers today can talk of policy and its discontents. My job is to bring people together. Given its growth, it will always be a challenge to keep our border functioning as smoothly as we'd like. There are too many things going on here, but we're going to continue to do everything we can to make life a little bit easier to the extent that we can. And so I cede the floor to my good friend and colleague, Remedios Gomez Arnau, San Diego Consul General for Mexico, who has done so much to build a better Mexican-American relationship in this region. And to Remedios, here you Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, before following on uh, Andrew's remarks, I would like to congratulate the organizers of Mexico Moving Forward. I think it's a terrific initiative and it's worth continuing with the title, Mexico Moving Forward. And um, Andrew, my friend and colleague, I think that you and me are working in this uh, binational mega region. It's proof that my friend Robert Pastor, who just passed away, was right when he was saying that the key problems that confound both countries can be solved only through deeper level of cooperation. After 20 years of NAFTA, 
We've been witnessing how North America, as Pastor used to say, has been transforming, and how we are now in the midpoint between an old border mentality and a new kind of continental market. Now, not only goods are traded, but also entrepreneurs are creating new products jointly. Both societies are interacting in a new way, and a different kind of international labor market is taking shape in front of our eyes. The movements of people were not contemplated by NAFTA, but they are actually transforming North America, and they will continue doing so. The Mexican and American federal administrations, as Andrew reminded us, have established as priorities to multiply the exchanges and the connections of people, of persons, uh, with the purpose of enhancing our human capital, the capabilities of that human cap capital, and creating more competitive North America. At this border, the consulates of Mexico in San Diego and the consulate of the United States in Tijuana, besides providing the services to our respective communities, we also are working to facilitate these goals of our federal administrations. Promoting more binational collaboration, more dialogue, more contacts, more connections. I will just mention some examples. In the political arena, we're facilitating organizing meetings between the mayors of San Diego and Tijuana with the purpose of finding joint projects that can benefit both sides of the border. In the economic arena, we are both uh, um, promoted the elaboration of uh, research about how are connected both economies here at the border and uh, uh, precisely we've uh, supported the creation of a map of the existing connections among companies from San Diego and Baja that are creating clusters of innovation. As a fundamental part of the trade, we've also looked into border infrastructure. And besides uh, participating in monthly meetings about the passenger and the vehicle ports of entry developments, we also promote the dialogue between local stakeholders and federal authorities on this issue. In the social arena, both consulates have also been promoting the academic and educational exchanges, as just uh, Andrew said, setting up meetings of representatives of universities from both sides of the border. We also started a pilot project connecting through video conference two high schools, one from San Diego and the other from Tijuana, in order for them to um, practice their new acquired language skills. And uh, we think that it will, on, will not only help them to improve their conversation skills, but also will help them to open their mind about the option of then going to study to the other side later. In the arts, we have also encouraged the connections, like in the case of the Binational Youth Orchestra formed by the Centro Musical de las Artes from Baja and the nonprofit organization mainly Mozart from San Diego. And last but certainly not least, in the philanthropy arena, we recognize the good work 
that groups of people perform across the border, like the Hospital Infantil de las Californias, that is uh, helping low-income children from Tijuana and San Diego to provide them medical assistance. So there are many areas and many persons from both sides of the border that are part of the transformation that I just mentioned before, that both consulates are trying just to reinforce. And we are trying also to open new channels of conversation, of dialogue. But notwithstanding all the collaboration and all the connections that have been developing in these 20 years of NAFTA, we still need to shatter barriers to achieve a more productive relationship and a better integrated North American region. The main barrier we still need to shatter is the mental one. Even though many politicians, entrepreneurs, workers, artists, professors, students, and citizens in general are already supporting all the existing connections, more people need to open their minds and dare to explore the benefits of working together. Several misperceptions persist among the average citizens of both countries that are preventing a bigger cooperation. That is, I think, the main challenge we're still facing at this border and in both countries. If more people learn to appreciate our similarities and understand that our differences are surmountable, we will be able to overcome the fear and the rejection that several groups of persons still have as a product of the bad perceptions grown in their minds. I'm sure that persons like you that are attending this conference will be able to help in overcoming those barriers. And I really invite all of you to do so. Thank you very much. Welcome to the third session, which is Mexico on the Move, Reforms for the 21st Century, as our panelists are getting situated here. The third session brings together policymakers at the helm of several important contemporary Mexico think tanks and research organizations. The panel will review major initiatives on President Enrique Peña Nieto's reform agenda, and Professor David Shirk will serve as the moderator of this panel. David Shirk is a professor at the University of San Diego. He's the director of USD's Justice in Mexico project with research concentrated in comparative politics, international politics, economy, Latin American studies, and U.S.-Latin American relations and Mexico and border politics. Juan Pardines is the CEO of Instituto Mexicano para la Competividad. Perdóname. He leads the nonprofit think tank with the aim to irritate political decision makers into taking action that is favorable to Mexican prosperity and development. Edna Jaime is the founder and CEO of Mexico Evalua, an organization dedicated to the analysis, monitoring, and evaluation of public policies in the area of safety and government spending. She was previously director at the Center for Development Research. Claire Silkey is a specialist in Latin American affairs at the Congressional Research Service with special attention to security issues. She focuses on Mexico, Bolivia, and Central, American, Central America at CRS, a nonpartisan research agency that serves the members and committees of Congress. 
and we have Duncan Wood, is the director of the Mexican Institute at the Wilson Center. For 17 years, he was the director of the International Relations Program at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónoma de México. His research focuses on Mexican energy policy, including renewable energy and North American relations. Each uh, presenter will speak for about 12 minutes. I believe that we're beginning with Juan Pardinas, and then um, David will moderate, ask, you know, participate in some discussion up here, and then hopefully we'll get a chance for some Q&A. Really, this panel, I think, is intended to address the fact that there are two visions of Mexico moving forward. Uh, on the one hand, there's the vision of Mexico moving forward as a matter of fact, Uh, and the other vision of Mexico moving forward as a matter of aspiration. And we have, uh, I think, uh, with us some of the, the leading thinkers, uh, some of the leading pundits, and some of the leading uh, makers in terms of uh, Me Mexico moving forward. Um, Mexico has made a lot of progress economically, politically, socially, uh, and we've seen reforms on a wide range of uh, topics in the last Uh, year alone uh, on energy reform, on fiscal reform, on education reform, and uh, at the same time, Mexico faces enormous challenges. As Denise Dresser talked about uh, last night, uh, as many people like to point out, uh, Mexico faces challenges on education, on, uh, on poverty and social welfare issues, uh, on overall competitiveness, uh, and uh, these challenges uh, prevent Mexico from realizing its full potential. Um, this group, I think, is very well situated and very well poised to give us a sense of what are the necessary steps for Mexico to address those challenges. What is being done in terms of, of reform efforts, uh, in terms of implementation. Um, and so I think we're going to have, we will go in a slightly different order than the uh, panel uh, description in your program. Uh, Juan will be talking to us, uh, irritating us, if you will, uh, with a, an overview of what are some of these challenges and opportunities. Duncan uh, will give us a, a, a better sense of uh, the energy sector reforms. Um, Claire will be talking to us about uh, a, a shared concern, which is security and immigration. Uh, and Edna, whose work has, has spanned a wide range of areas, education, transparency, uh, fiscal governance, uh, will, will uh, bring home the discussion by talking uh, about Uh, those issues and generally the issue of rule of law. Um, so we'll start with Juan and, and move through the program. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to share with you my uh, reasons for optimism and, and pessimism in Mexico. This could be very therapeutical, I would say, because it, uh, it is said that uh, Mexico does not need the policy wonks like me to overcome its problems. We need more like a shrink. Uh, and, and why I, I mean this? Uh, because if you want to be very uh, optimistic about the future of Mexico, the best thing you could do is uh, read uh, a newspaper this morning, or even better, maybe the cover of Time magazine of last week. But if you want to be very pessimistic about the future of Mexico, you could read the same newspaper and read the, the whole article of Time magazine. Uh, so there's both good reasons at the same time to be uh, pessimistic and, and optimistic. 
about the country. Which, which are the main reasons for my optimism? Uh, I, I write a, a column on, on newspaper reforma on Sundays. And for years, I was really, really tempted. On Saturday morning, I have to write my column. And I thought, like, well, if I look at my archive and take out uh, an article I published like four years ago, and I publish it tomorrow, really no one will notice. <laughs> Because we were discussing the same problems over and over and over. I wonder if some of you have seen this great Hollywood movie, Groundhog Day, where the same day repeats one day after the other, where Mexican public policy debate was like this like for 15 years. So we had two sexenios and a half of stagnation, where people that work in, in policy debates, we were using the same slides year after year, maybe just changing... Uh, uh, the data, we, we asked Juan Gallardo to uh, make it, to uh, put it up with, with the years. Uh, but the, in essence, the, we, we had this laundry list that the country, for, in order to change, we need labor reform, we need fiscal reform, we need energy reform. And it, was, it, it got to the point, it was quite frustrating, in a, in a, not just in a professional perspective, but in a, in a human perspective. Uh, perspective, that we, we are literally stagnated discussing the same uh, issues. From the perspective of, of the Mexican Congress, I, I, I would say that for years they could not even agree to organize a, a, a birthday party in a kindergarten. It was, it was as, as bad as that. And suddenly you have all these cliches in your mind that how your country works and doesn't work. And in the period of 14 months, we made all the reforms we haven't made in the previous 15 years. So it was a, a strong reality check. We have to dump all these uh, prejudices to, to the garbage. And then we, we really need to start thinking, what should I write tomorrow? Because I cannot use the article I published in 2007. Uh, reality uh, is, is changing. And, and in that sense, it's very positive, not just for the Mexican economy in itself, but also for the Mexican politics. Because for a, a young democracy, as, as the Mexican democracy, it got to a point that we confuse democracy with, uh, with gridlock. And uh, a few uh, years ago, President of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, said that a country that suffers extreme political polarization inevitably experiences economic stagnation. I'm sure that this, true, uh, this, this uh, phrase holds true both sides of, the bo of our borders. In the Mexican case, it was these 15 years of talking about the same issues, and suddenly, in high speed, we, we worried for years of the things that were not happening, and now we have to worry of the things that are happening and how they are happening. So it, it's very positive that we are looking at the country in a different light, in a different speed. So many reforms have occurring uh, in, in a short uh, period of time. But uh, we managed already to do what was the hardest thing to imagine. Now we have to achieve the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to imagine is that we will address issues as 
confrontational as energy reform in Mexico, which is also very close to our heart, very close of our, to our national identity. And I'm sure, as, as my friend Duncan will, will address, it, it, it was uh, very complicated from so many perspectives of, of, of uh, national identity, historical perspective, the sort of failure of the previous process of reform during the Carlos Salinas uh, government, which promised to achieve the enormous economic growth and prosperity. And actually what we got at the end of, of the Salinas government was the te tequila crisis. So the Mexican population had this uncertainty about, about reform. And now we have to re kind of rekindle the, the need to, to change, the need to, to reform. And that was uh, what happened in 2013. Which are the, the reasons that, that make me a bit uh, pessimistic about these complexities? We know very well in, in Latin America that it's easier to, to change the constitution than changing reality. A couple of weeks ago, I, I have a conversation with a Colombian entrepreneur he, he, he's in the business of natural gas for vehicles. So he has around $2 million in stock uh, circulating around Mexico City, which are taxis and buses, public transport buses, which were converted from diesel to natural gas. And he wanted to increase his investment in Mexico City, create different points of distribution could be, that could be very expensive, because he has to uh, construct these pipes in order to connect all the distribution process. And he came to my office to kind of also in a thera therapeutic need to, to share his views that he was very optimistic that what Mexico has, uh, had achieved. But in this process to, to build a new distribution plant in Mexico City, he got... Uh, a permit to build the plant, a permit from the Mexico City government, which basically said that it was a provisional permit that could be remote, uh, revoked at any time. And he told me, imagine how I feel to go with my investors and tell them that I need $2 million to build a distribution plant of natural gas for vehicles in Mexico City with a permit that says that it's provisional and revocable. I didn't want to be in his shoes. And the problem, it really, uh, his personal problem as an entrepreneur, someone trying to bring money to invest in natural gas, which is good for environment and good for the economy because we don't have to spend so much public resources subsidizing uh, energy. Uh, he, it, it was that this re uh, reform at constitutional level gave him a lot of optimism of how Mexico would work. But suddenly, someone in, in the, uh, in that, at the government in Mexico City decided not to give him the permit. So it's kind of a clash of visions and the, the clash of realities. Yeah, we managed to agree in a very challenging uh, constitutional debate to reform our laws that have been there for uh, most of the 20th century and all the, uh, the, the 21st century. And suddenly all this movement for change and reform, it's blocked by a bureaucrat that gives permits for energy distribution in Mexico City. So how are we going to balance this 
uh, efforts, this move for reforms with this and confront them with these basic realities on the ground. I would say that the biggest reform that Mexico needs is a reform that has not happened. The biggest structural reform is rule of law. And I'm sure uh, my friend and colleague Edna Jaime will tell you more about it. But we basically, the, the fact that we Mexicans, starting by authority and government, will uphold and respect the law would be the biggest transformation in our economy, our politics, and our society. And that still hasn't happened. And how are we going to enforce and transform these huge uh, reforms that had occurred at constitutional level into real prosperity, real opportunities uh, for, for the Mexican people in this con context of uncertainty where you could start a business bring opportunity to Mexico City, reduce pollution, but you don't have the legal, legal certainty to guarantee that the business is going to be there in five or ten years and an uh, inspector from the delegation or the municipality will come and close your, your plant. These are the kind of practical challenges that we have to face day, to day, day in and day out. So the biggest challenge for reforms to work is to make them enforceable, to make to the application of reforms in reality, to put them to work. And that's going to be an enormous challenge for the future years. And I hope they work, because what is at stake, I think it's much more larger than Mexican prosperity itself. It's also Mexican, the, the future of Mexican democracy. Because we pay a high price of social and political confrontation through the energy reform. And that price has to be transformed in goods for the people, of real economic opportunities and economic growth. Because if not, I, I, would, I would have serious concerns of how this, if this doesn't deliver, this reform doesn't deliver the potential that it really has. I'm very optimistic about it, but I would leave the optimistic, the optimistic part to Duncan. If it doesn't deliver, I, would, I, I have my worries of how, for example, the presidential debates in 2018 will occur, criticizing this reform that it was extremely conflicting at the heart of the Mexican society, at the heart of the Mexican politics, is, is this reform doesn't bring the potential for prosperity and, and growth for everyone. It's not just the economy which is, uh, would be in trouble. It's, it's the substance and the future of Mexican democracy itself. Anyhow, we should be very proud of what we have achieved. It's, uh, it, the potential is enormous. We managed to transform a part of our economy that was uh, kind of designed by a Stalinistic model of, of economic development. The heart of our economy lied in the middle part of the 20th century and the rest of our economy. It's a globally integrated economy. There's, it's hard to find a country that has so many free trade agreements with the rest of the world as Mexico. But the energy sector, which was totally closed, still lived in a, in a time far from the present and far from the opportunity and potential that we all Mexicans deserve. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, uh, I want to start with a little story. If you uh, are lucky enough ever to get invited to Pemex's boardroom, 
and you get to walk in on the right-hand side of the boardroom, you'll look up and you'll see a beautiful mural of the history of Mexico. If you look up on the left-hand side, there's a mural of the history of the oil industry in Mexico. And it all begins with the early drilling for oil and discovery of a, a lot of oil in the ground, and it gradually goes through the industrialization process of the oil, in, of the oil sector. And at the last panel of the mural, as you come to the right of the room, there's several figures in the, in the foreground representing Pemex. And in the background, there's a little fishing boat. And on that fishing boat, there's a man. If you look very closely, there's a man in the fishing boat. And that man is a guy called Rudecindo Cantarell. And Rudecindo Cantarell is a near-mythical figure in Mexico now because he's the man that, completely by accident, discovered one of the world's largest oil fields in the 1970s. Rudecindo gets on his fishing boat one day, goes out to the Bay of Campeche, uh, and he's fishing, and his, oil, his nets are covered in oil. So he comes back and he goes to the local Pemex office, and he says, look, you've got an oil leak out there, you've got to fix it. And Pemex says, we don't have an oil well out there. And he says, well, you better go and have a look. And for a while, nobody really listens to him. But eventually, they go out and they check it out, and they discover the world's, at the time, second largest oil field. Now, Cantarell became a mega field for Mexico and became a source of enormous wealth. And you'd like to think that Rudecindo received a percentage of the profits, but he didn't. He just got the oil field named after him. Hey, you know, that's, that kind of sucks, but what are you going to do? The reason why I mentioned Cantarell was because Cantarell became an albatross in many ways around the Mexican uh, government and Mexican economy's neck. Um, when asked in, uh, in, the, in the 1990s, um, what would have happened to Mexico if you hadn't discovered the Cantarell oil field? Um, an undersecretary of hydrocarbons in the energy ministry said, I think we probably would have been one of the t most developed nations in the world by now. And the reason for that is because, as you can see on this chart on my left here, Cantarell at its peak, which was in 2003-2004, reached over 2 million barrels a day of production from one oil field. That's huge. And it bumped Mexican oil production up to three, almost 3.4 million barrels of oil a day. That was the peak. That was the high point. And from that point on, we saw a precipitous decline from 3.4 million barrels a day to 2.5 million barrels a day, which is where we are today, or 2.55, more or less. Mexico's government has suffered because of this decline in oil production in the country, partly because of the impact upon Pemex, the national oil company, but also because, of course, the Mexican government has depended so heavily on oil revenue for its fiscal revenue, um, up to 35 or more percent of its total budget coming from that uh, particular element. And this is what made the energy reform so important, the energy reform that we saw last year in December. This is not a new story. This is a story that we have been telling since the mid-2000s. I actually got involved in Mexican oil policy discussions in 2005. And I said to everybody, when I looked at this chart about what was projected, I said, well, just show everybody the chart and they'll know what to do. But they said to me, we can't do that. And the reason why they can't do that is because we've done so many things before. The reason why the, the energy reform in December of last year was so extraordinary is because Many impressive people had tried it before. Carlos Salinas had tried to have an energy reform. Vicente Fox had tried to have an energy reform. Felipe Calderón had tried to have an energy reform. And each time it was pushed back for some of the reasons that uh, Juan already mentioned. The close connection between the Mexican people, sovereignty, and oil. In one of the favorite things that I like to quote, there's a great uh, uh, opinion poll that's taken every couple of years by uh, CIDE University in Mexico City, where they ask Mexicans about their opinions about the world. And one of the questions on there is, um, if you believed it would uh, result in a significant improvement of your standard of living, would you agree to total integration with the United States of America? And year after year, a small majority of Mexicans say yes. 
Further down in the survey, there's another question. The Mexican oil industry is in trouble. We're losing production. Do you think that we should allow foreign direct investment in our oil sector? 80% of Mexicans say no. Now, if you put those two questions together, Mexicans are more likely to sell their country than their oil. Okay? That's why this is so important, because for years people said to us, it can't happen, the people will never let it happen. Some of us said, we think that public opinion may be a little bit more malleable than that. The Pacto por México that you've heard about already um, was an extraordinary process last year. Not just an achievement in getting the parties together, but the ongoing negotiation that took place between them. And the Pacto was really a prelude to the oil reform, because the oil reform, remember, the energy reform more broadly, didn't take place under the auspices of the, of the Pacto. The Pacto broke at that point, and you just had the pre and the pan against the PRD at that point in time. We had a government proposal in, in August of last year which was actually quite a modest proposal. It talked about profit-sharing contracts, not even production-sharing contracts, profit-sharing where a private company would be able to go in, produce the oil, pass it over to the state, the state would sell the oil and give a share of the profits back to the private company. And the private sector looked at it and said, we're really not that interested in this, you've got to do better. But the government only made a serious movement on making it better, more attractive for private investment, actually in the last days of the debate, when the pan forced the government, to accept a more ambitious proposal. Essentially the proposal that the PAN had had on the table since before the government had proposed theirs. It's a very, very impressive political achievement when you actually look at the wording of the final legislation and you look at what the PAN put on the table earlier on in the year. We got an impressive reform. And I don't want to be a downer here because I actually think this is an incredible reform. But there's a lot of hard work to do now. And luckily, I think that this government recognizes the hard work uh, that it has to do. Right now, we're having discussions about secondary legislation. And we kind of expected that secondary legislation would already be in the Congress by now. And we're all beginning to ask the question, where is it? Why do we not have this secondary legislation that is so important in implementing the constitutional reform that took place in December of last year? The answer to that question, I believe, is that the government is working incredibly hard with the opposition, and not just the PAN this time, but also the PRD, on getting the secondary legislation right, because it has to be right. It's impressive that you have a, 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 a big constitutional reform, but it's not enough. You need to have definitions. You need to have uh, delimitations. You have to have an assignment of responsibilities. And this secondary uh, legislation needs to go hand in hand with strong, firm, predictable regulations. You need to have regulatory institutions, which need to be built almost from scratch, Two of them exist already, of the three that need to be, need to be uh, in operation. But those two that exist already are weak institutions. They're understaffed, they're underfunded, and there's a lot of work to do. The government needs to work hard on the contract terms that will be offered to foreign investors because they've finally woken up to the fact that not everybody around the world wants to come in and get Mexican oil just because it's Mexican oil. The molecules that are in Mexican oil are exactly the same as the molecules that are in oil off the coast of Nigeria, off the coast of Brazil, in the Middle East, etc., just because it's Mexican oil, it's not special. But for years, people in Mexico believed that, first of all, the Americans, the evil British, of course, and others were de desperate to come in and steal Mexican oil. And now the realization is, look, there's a lot of oil in the world. If you don't offer the right terms, if you don't offer the right conditions, then the private sector isn't going to come in. And that's what the government's working hard on right now. They need to reform the national oil company. Well, in fact, they need to create a national oil company because up until this point, Pemex has just been a decentralized agency of the state. Now it has to become a company, a productive company. And it needs to start looking at making a profit. 
because that's going to be good for everyone. Just as Juan said, this needs to be a reform that works for the people of Mexico. It needs to be a reform which actually makes Pemex stronger, because otherwise people will see this as a failure. The role of the opposition is crucial in this, not just in the definition of the constitutional reform, but now that these discussions are taking place, and I'm very encouraged by the fact that the PRD is now back at the table. And the PRD is coming in with actually very solid ideas with regards to regulation and to the reform of Pemex. In terms of a timeline, we're in the middle of this right now, 120 days from the passing of the constitutional reform for secondary legislation to be approved by the Congress. That has to be done by the middle of April, essentially. There's 90 days from the 20th of December for the government to actually, sorry, for Pemex to decide which oil fields it wants to hang on to to submit that application to the National Hydrocarbons Commission. And the National Hydrocarbons Commission then decides on what Pemex gets to keep, what it gets to collaborate on with a private sector partner, and what it doesn't get at all. That process is going to take another six months after that. Pemex and the National Electricity Company, the CFE, need to be turned into productive public companies by 2016. It's a lot of work to do in a very short period of time. And then we're going to look at round one of bidding. And we don't know when that's going to happen. The finance minister, Luis Vidagaray, has told us that he wants to see it before Christmas of this year. I think that's uh, an extraordinarily ambitious goal. And I'll tell you why I think that's ambitious. Mostly because of the regulation and the institution-building factors here. If you look at what needs to be done to prepare Mexico for opening of its oil sector, there's an enormous amount of work to do. Just looking at the National Hydrocarbons Commission, at this point in time, it has a skeleton staff. It's going to need to hire, conservatively, 100 people, but more realistically, a couple of hundred people. And the sad thing is that those people don't exist because you don't have those people in Mexico. They don't exist in terms of having the training, the experience. Now, the answer from politicians is, well, we'll just import them. Well, it's incredibly difficult to import those people. You have to convince them with salaries, conditions, and that Mexico is a place that they want to go and work and live. This is one of the biggest challenges. And if you speak to people in the regulatory uh, business right now, they're actually seriously concerned that the government is going to push through the first round of bidding, essentially opening up the private sector to the private sector without having the regulatory institutions in place. There are other challenges ahead for the Mexican energy sector. Public security is one issue that I'd be happy to talk over in the Q&A afterwards. I think that people tend to exaggerate it because the oil sector is used to working in di difficult and dangerous conditions around the world. If they can work in Nigeria, they can probably work in Coahuila. But it is a cost. Infrastructure issues. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built before this oil uh, reform can really actually take hold. The regulation issue I've already talked about, and human capital. I talked about human capital in the regulatory sector, but there's another serious problem. In Pemex alone, over the next five to seven years, we're going to see a mass extinction. Around 10,000 petroleum engineers are about to retire. Now, Pemex has these wonderfully generous terms where if you've worked a certain number of years, and often that comes in your early 50s, you can retire on 120% of your final salary. Not bad, eh? I wish I had uh, done a petroleum engineering degree. What do those people do? Well, some of them go off and they live at the beach for the rest of their lives. Some of them become consultants. You're going to lose an enormous number of people from Pemex, but you're also going to lose them from the oil sector in general. We've got to think about training petroleum engineers, seismic uh, mappers. We've got to think about training regulators, lawyers, managers to actually fully staff this energy revolution, which is on the way. And to close, I just want to end on this. This is why it matters. Not just because you saw that precipitous decline, but what's left in Mexico? 
That first chart I showed you was about production. This is about what's left. If you look at it, the existing 3P, that's proven, possible, and probable reserves, standard measure in the oil industry, there's 43.8 billion barrels left in Mexico. If you add in unconventional, you have 32 billion barrels. If you add in, un, uh, sorry, if that's unconventional, that is, uh, is, is, is uh, probable. If you have unconventional, which is prospective, this is oil that we think is going to be, uh, oil and gas which is going to be available in the shale reserves in Mexico, you add another 28 billion. And if you move on to the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico, you have around 55 billion barrels of oil. Add it all together, oil and gas potential in Mexico, 158, 159 billion barrels of oil equivalent. At $100 a barrel, that's a lot of money. And that's why the oil reform matters. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for everyone here at UCSD for the invitation to participate in Mexico Moving Forward Conference. This has been an incredible opportunity for me to learn from people coming both from Mexico and from the border region. Um, I'm stuck in Washington, D.C., where it's still snowing, and um, a, lot of the, a lot of my research is, um, is doing secondhand reading of what these luminaries write, and so it's really an opportunity um, incredible for me to be here. I just wanted to say that my comments today, um, I work at a nonpartisan agency called CRS, Congressional Research Service, and we um, work for all the members and committees of Congress. So my comments today are my own, and they don't reflect um, the opinions of CRS um, or the opinions of Mexico on Capitol Hill, which, um, as you can imagine, they vary widely, whether you're talking to someone from the border who knows Mexico well, whether you're talking to someone who's not from the border region who knows nothing about Mexico, or whether you're talking to someone who's Republican or Democrat, it's very different. So today I'm just going to provide you with my impressions, um, not so much about the intricacies of the reforms going through um, in Mexico, um, because my expertise is more in the security realm, where um, it's been a less visible, less emphasized part of um, this government's uh, reform efforts. But I also, I just want to make some comments on how the reforms that they have done um, and that the Calderon administration began um, appear to be affecting our bilateral cooperation in both security and, and migration um, realms. For years, uh, U.S.-Mexican relations have, be, have been focused on trade, migration, or security. And we've really seen, and in my time as an analyst, it focused on security since 9-11 and then during the Calderon administration when there was this all-out effort against criminal organizations. A lot of what I um, got questions about in the last five years or so has been about the violence in Mexico, the different drug trafficking organizations, and, and, and whether the U.S. was doing enough domestically on our drug policy, on... Um, weapons trafficking, difficult issues, domestic issues that play into the problems that Mexico's have been experiencing. A lot of what I've written on has been on um, the Merida Initiative, which is this bilateral security cooperation effort that you don't hear about now, but um, Congress has given th uh, about $2.3 billion now to Mexico um, for, to help out, um, but Mexico's invested $10, $12 billion a year in security, much more than we have. And it's kind of um, been the focus of bilateral efforts around four pillars, which um, you may all know which is disrupting criminal organizations, institutionalizing the rule of law, 
building a modern border, and, and strengthening communities. I will say that since Enrique Peña Nieto and the, and the pre-return to power uh, in, in late 2012, the, the dialogue and the discourse in Washington about Mexico has totally changed. And um, those of you all who are in the United States have seen, it's not just the Time cover, it's all of the covers featuring Mexico in, in a positive light and, and, and focusing really on, on all the reforms that have been passed. And I, I had the pleasure of um, this year of being there when the U.S. Uh, Senate met with the Mexican Senate and the uh, the Chamber of Deputies in Mexico met with the um, U.S. House of Representatives. And it was difficult for the American legislators to be like, yeah, we haven't done that. We haven't done that. Yes, we haven't done that on, on you know, weapons trafficking or we haven't been able to do immigration reform. But we congratulate you, Mexicans, for working across three parties. It's not just two, three, actually seven or eight parties, but, but you know, that you've been working in this multi-party negotiation. So it's been a little bit of a, I think, a bit of humble pie for our Congress to see a Congress really functioning really, really well. Um, and and, and I, I know that a lot of the reforms, a lot of us um, who are analysts, who are just watchers, we don't, you know, keep tabs on whether the secondary legislation has actually been passed for things like the telecommunications. Things are behind schedule already. And we don't ask the tough questions about, well, are they going to be implemented? And, and, and that's that sort of thing that we need to do that I need to keep reminding people in Congress when they're like, the pact for Mexico and Peña Nieto, it's so wonderful. You know, we hear all the positives, but um, sometimes I have to keep, you know, reminding members of Congress that, you know, there's a lot of steps in, in getting these reforms to actually be fruitful. Um, but I will say it's been impressive, too, to look at the bilateral relationship and to see how the, the types of things that were talked about in the high-level economic dialogue have really become the focus in new things like energy cooperation, both in conventional and unconventional, and alternative energy, working together on those issues and working together on education, have really replaced the talk about, um, you know, what types of, um, of equipment can we get? I mean, it's still happening. The Merit Initiative is still happening, but it's not the focus of, of efforts, at least at the highest levels. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, if you had asked me if a couple of months ago um, to comment on security cooperation between the two countries or what the Peña Nieto government's security policy looked like, I would sort of have to pause and say, I'm not sure yet. It seems like it's a work in progress. It seems a little, still a little bit amorphous. You know, is it Calderon's approach just with less um, media coverage or better handling of the media? Um, why is it failing in its main goals of, of reducing kidnapping and, and extortions? Um, are they really advancing police reform? What's happening to efforts that began in that, that area under Calderon? Um, what are they going to do about the self-defense groups in Michoacan? I mean, I thought it was striking when you saw Peña Nieto at Davos and all the questions were about Michoacan and not about investment and not about the reforms and not about what he wanted to talk about. Um, you know, the events of the last few weeks have been, have been positive, and I will say that, that I'm, I'm optimistic because a lot of times what I am reading is the public realm. I'm not reading the secret cables that are coming through um, that are sh showing all the degree of cooperation that's occurring. And what I had been seeing in the public, you know, unclassified realm was that, you know, it seemed as if extradition levels last year were down. Um, there was no high-level meeting at the cabinet level on security with Mexico last year, um, that, you know, there was still some tension with the law enforcement that they had been, you know, put restrictions on what they were doing in Mexico. And when you look at the Merida Initiative, uh, the U.S. delivered $500 million worth of equipment and training in 2011, $265 million in 2012, but only $50 million last year. It really was, like, stuck. And you had all these people in the Mexican U.S. Embassy in Mexico waiting for Mexico to tell them what they wanted to do or whether they didn't want the money, and it's still about a billion dollars 
of, of, of money. And so when, you know, as of November, I was pretty worried. I was like, what's going on? Nobody's talking about this. Um, now you have seen in the last couple of weeks that, um, Mexico, uh, promulgated the new unified criminal code, um, which could advance efforts. I mean, we don't know. There's not much time left to make the 2016 deadline. And I'm sure you'll comment more on that and whether they're just, you know, whether they're deep enough, whether they address the, the real issues like police reform and, and respect for the rule of law, that still needs to be seen, I think. Um, but that could uh, promote more bilateral efforts in that area because we definitely have an interest in funding them when Mexico tells us what to do and, and what's okay. I do think it's also positive that um, Mexico's interior and foreign ministries have, have worked together to develop a plan where they're going to uh, approve new projects for Merida at the embassy level with the U.S. embassy staff and that they, in recent months, they've reached an agreement for the first $250 million of that pipeline to, to move forward. And that includes efforts with the Attorney General's office and with, um, I think it's 10 Mexican states. And so things are moving forward. I also think that all the reports you heard about um, the, the detailed cooperation that happened between the Mexican Marines and a variety of U.S. law enforcement was very positive in terms of the arrest of um, Chapo Guzman. And maybe a lot of things are going on in other parts of Mexico. Probably they are in Michoacan and other areas where we are working together. So, in, at least from my perspective, as it appears that this security cooperation is advancing, um, you know, there is cooperation on migration, albeit there's a, a I've, some of you all have mentioned there's been a big interest on Capitol Hill in balancing our concerns about security and migration at the border with trade facilitation. And I think you did see some funding in the 2014 bill. You've seen some hearings. You've seen a lot of efforts on public-private partnerships. What can we do to facilitate trade at the border and not just be worried about security concerns and, and slowing things down? Um, how can we balance our investments in the Border Patrol with our investments in the customs officers that will, will get the goods through um, the ports of entry? So I'm not an immigration specialist, um, and I, I have to, um, you know, predicate my comments on immigration on that. I think this is a really tough issue. And, of course, you know, my domestic analysts were, where I work uh, were very, very busy in 2013 when the Senate passed their bill. And then, you know, if, I, if you had asked me in late 2013, I kept asking them, is, is this the year? Is, is comprehensive reform going to happen? And back then they were sort of off optimistic. But on Friday I was at a uh, panel um, with the Inter-American Dialogue in Washington, and Doris Meisner was making comments for the Migration Policy Institute. And I'm just quoting her when she basically said, you know, it's going to be 2015 at the soonest that that might happen. And so all of the Latin Americans, you know, the ambassadors were there. And, and even the Central Americans were more frustrated, maybe even than the Mexicans, that all of these issues that, that were pending and, and that, are, that involve migration, such as removals, that's huge for, for people from Central America. The, the volume of removals, the procedures involved with removals, the lack of information sharing or, or a, a, amount of information sharing between our law enforcement and receiving countries, um, whether or not the U.S. would be willing to provide uh, assistance to people who are deported to kind of reintegrate them into their communities. We've done some pilot projects, but I don't know that there's um, funding or, or a will there to do that. Um, and then you've seen this new real concern, and there was more money in the budget, in 2014 budget, for the unaccompanied children that are coming, many, mainly from Central America. There may be 75,000 this year at the border, up from like six or 7,000 a few years ago. And I'm not a domestic immigration analyst, but I know that's a huge issue. And if the U.S. is struggling to deal with that, how is HHS going to help these children, you know, find a place to, to even keep them, which is not in the same detention facilities as other people? Are they going to be removed back? Can they, can they be linked up with family? How do we do this? I know Mexico probably struggles with some of the similar issues. And Mexico is, um, you know, they passed their own uh, migration law 
2011, I think, and, and some of that was to respond to criticism that they had received for being harsh and not doing enough to protect Central American immigrants from both the criminal groups but also corrupt officials that have abused them in recent years. You see 400,000 immigrants from Central America transiting Mexico and Mexico removing or deporting um, 70,000 to 100,000. I think in 2005 it was more than 200,000 um, people before they even got to our border. So you see Mexico caught as a, as a transit country and even a destination country now as it its levels of people leaving Mexico may be down and everyone says it's at zero, but Mexico has its own problems now trying to deal with what do we do with less resources than the United States has when we're kind of caught in the middle of this, of this, of this pattern. And so I think there's a great opportunity, I would close with saying, for U.S. and Mexican and Central American officials to all be in a dialogue, a regional dialogue on migration, and to, to address these issues like the circularity of, of people with criminal records or even people that don't have criminal records coming back and forth because um, their lives are in the United States states or their families may be here and, and, and they're not going to stay in El Salvador or Guatemala or at least they don't appear to be doing so. What do we do about all the children that are coming alone? Um, this is a, you know, a, a humanitarian issue, I think. And, um, and I hope to do a, re, a report with my colleagues at CRS um, later this year looking at it and, and raising issues that Congress might consider. I think others are definitely doing it as well. Migration Policy Institute and other groups are looking at this. So anyway, thank you so much, for everyone, and, uh, and I look forward to your questions. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I want to thank the organizers for the kind invitation. 20 years ago, Mexico signed the North America Free Trade Agreement with the US and Canada. This represented a turning point for the country, not only in economic and trade issues, but also in terms of its society, its culture, and its institutions. Seminars were held in many U.S. universities, UCSD included, to analyze the profound transformations that were taking place south of the border. Many asked then if Mexico was finally on its way to become a fully developed country. And what are the basic elements that mark the line that a nation must cross to be considered developed? At the risk of oversimplifying, we can say that a developed country meets three basic conditions. A stable free market economy, an open political system where democracy is the only game in town, and a strong rule of law enforced by a reliable justice system. In two of these three areas, Mexico has been clearly moving forward. Our integration to the North American economy put in motion a wave of deep economic transformations. Trade barriers were systematically lowered, transforming Mexico from an inward-looking oil-dependent economy to an open, export-based, industrial powerhouse. Today, Mexico exports more manufacturers than all the nations of Latin America combined. Macroeconomic discipline became a solid foundation of the nation's growth after decades of public overspending, inflation, and stability. Key economic institutions, such as the central bank, were reinforced and became the cornerstone for financial responsibility. 
Mexico also moved forward in the democratic front. We went from a semi-authoritarian one-party regime to a vibrant, competitive, multi-party system. Political elites built a strong electoral system which guaranteed free elections. Society fought and won for political and civil liberties. However, Mexico has not experienced the same deep transformation in the rule of law and justice system. The third foundation of Mexico development has remained weak, almost untouched. This in part explains the deep security crisis that the country has experienced since the late 19s. The old regime justice system was designed with a single purpose, ensuring political control. The system was more or less effective to contain crime, but it never created the necessary institutions to build a true democratic rule of law. As our moderator, David Schick, has put it, police and justice reform has not kept pace with Mexico's democratic regime change, and I agree completely. We have experienced a profound political transition, but our security and justice institutions remain stuck in the past. This factor explains, in a large extent, our security crisis. It's one of the elements that made possible what has been called the perfect storm. How does this perfect storm look like? As you will see in the next graphs, murder, kidnappings, and robbery rates have grown steadily in the last 20 years. Murder has become a true epidemic, reaching outstanding peaks since the 2000s. Despite a recent, recent downward trend, murder rates remain too high for a nation with the development levels of Mexico. Kidnapping doubled in the last decades and remains as one of the most feared crimes in many areas of the country. An extortion has become a sad reminder that in many parts of Mexico, crime is extracting rents from society with absolute impunity. How, how do we get to this point? We really don't have a full developed answer. But let me show some indicators that I think like in the origin of the problem. The first is impunity. A stark example is impunity for murder, which is estimated at 80%. This means that if you kill someone in Mexico, there are 8 out of 10 chances that you will get away with it. For robbery, the impunity rate reaches 90%. So, as you can see, crime does pain in Mexico, as the chances of getting caught are very low. The second indicator is the absence of crime reports to authorities. 92% of all crimes go unreported in Mexico. This is both a cause and an effect of lawlessness. The third indicator is the low confidence that the public has in security and justice institutions. While the army and the navy enjoy wide public support, the judges and the general attorney office and the police forces rank much lower 
in public esteem. An example, an expression of how this lack of trust is eroding Mexican society is the existence of more than a hundred vigilante organizations across the nation called self-defense group. Some of them have had armed clashes with both criminal organizations and the authorities. And the fourth indication, indicator is the weakness of security and justice institutions. As you can see in the graph, the number of intentional homicides per year rose sharply but the annual number of solved cases remain unchanged. According to the World Justice Project, Mexico's criminal justice system is amongst the worst globally. Mexico's criminal justice system stands in the 91st place out of 97 countries in the World Justice Project ranking. Mexico's score is equal to that of Liberia, and only some points above that of Venezuela, the lowest-ranking country. In sum, Mexico today has an economy the size of Italy's or South Korea's. It has political institutions that have ensured an orderly transition to democracy. But it has the justice system of Liberia, a nation that ranks in the bottom level of the United Nations Human Development Indicators. Where does all this leave us? My main concern is that while in Mexico and abroad there is a lot of talk about economic and political reforms, less attention is being paid to the area that need, needs more effort. Everybody's talking about telecommunication, education, competition, and of course energy reform. But the 2008 criminal justice reform is still facing daunting challenges. Only three of out of 32 states show major advance in the implementation of this key reform. The main actors of the justice system, prosecutors, judges, and attorneys, lack of new capabilities for this system. Police investigation processes should be modernized and improved. The reform demands better infrastructure for criminal justice, justice institutions. Can Mexico become a developed nation in this context? The answer is clearly no. Mexico needs a renewed commitment from most political actors for an effective and profound justice reform. Strengthen both federal and especially local security and justice institutions build new capacities among police and criminal justice operators, build confidence in the benefits of having a society who believes in the rule of law. In conclusion, Mexico is moving forward. In those areas where it was already moving forward, economic reforms are welcome to improve growth rates and ensure a better quality of life for millions of impoverished Mexicans. Political reforms are, are, of course, needed to enhance the political representation and accountability system. But the area that has been long neglected, the rule of law, is still lagging behind in terms of public and academic, academic debate, the government's agenda and budget, 
and institutional strengthening, especially at the local level. My concern is that 20 years from now, we will still be wondering if Mexico is moving forward or not. The answer will depend on whether or not Mexico is capable of building a new security and justice system. It is up to us in the academia and civil society to address the issue and raise it in Mexico's list of priorities. Only by keeping this debate alive and kicking, we will be able to push key decision makers to take the necessary steps to build a strong rule of law. The challenges are enormous, but Mexico has no option if it wants to join the ranks of developed nations. Thank you very much. First of all, let's start on a bright note. Why was Enrique Peña Nieto so successful in his first year at achieving such a broad array array of reforms. Uh, This is a person who many people uh, during the lead-up to the 2012 Mexican presidential (coughs) elections thought was a lightweight because he had only read two and a half books. Um, What what is his secret? Why has he been so successful? Uh, Anyone? Uh, Juan, uh, do you want to take that? Well, uh, first, uh, we have to look where we came from, which was 15 years of, of gridlock. So uh, there was kind of a boiling point that the whole political class need to bring results. Then uh, President Peña Nieto had a huge advantage that he didn't have the PRI as an opposition, uh, which could come very handy if you're the president of Mexico, as it was shown for 12 years during the Panista administration. Uh, it has shown so far a painful equilibrium that the panistas are much, much better in the opposition than, gov- in, gov- uh, than in government and the priestas are much, much better in government than in uh, the opposition. Uh, and to, to keep it short, uh, I think one of the big mistakes of uh, the adversaries of, of uh, Mr. Peña Nieto during the campaign it was to underestimate him. Uh, he, I think he's a good listener. Uh, he has the capability of deciding, and he has proven to be a, a, a very good uh, decision maker and power broker. Uh, so this combination of, of factors had led Mexico to, to finish this, process, this period of gridlock. But I would not say it's just his uh, merit or success. It's also the success of the whole political uh, system in Mexico and uh, and, uh, the democracy itself. Can I uh, come? Yeah, please. Uh, uh, Others. I just uh, the cover of Time, you know, has Peñito on the front, and there's been a cover that's been ridiculed by many people. There are fabulous mock-ups of him as the Virgen de Guadalupe, etc., etc. But inside, and, and you do have to read the article because I think people jump to too many conclusions about it, but inside there's a photograph of Peña Nieto and behind him there's Luis Vidigaray on one side and Miguel Ángel Osorio Chong on the other. It's a great picture because, you know, as people have always told me, uh, you know, he, Peña Nieto is a man who knows what he doesn't know. And so he has terrific advisors. And I'm not saying he's Ronald Reagan, 
but there are certain similarities that you can draw there. It's not a genius, but he has a great team behind him, and he listens to them, and he knows how to pick out what may be a winning formula from that. But I think that, that photograph is actually wrong. I think you could substitute Miguel Ángel Osorio Chong and Luis Videgaray with the leader of the PAN, Gustavo Marrero, and the leader of the PRD, Jesus Zambrano. You have uh, 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 an incredible opportunity beginning in December of, uh, of 2012, where both opposition parties are severely divided internally, and both of their leaderships are looking to be rele- uh, relevant. And that offers an opportunity, a political opening, because, and people in this room may disagree with me, but I think that ultimately Mexican political DNA is priista. I think that's how they think. I think that ultimately at the, at the core level, it's a question of do you want to be in the room or do you want to be outside of the room? Do you want to be in the photograph or do you not want to appear in a photograph? And the relevance of this is that if you have a seat at the table, you may have some kind of impact over the decision that's taken. Both Gustavo Madero and Jesus Zambrano took the decision that in the context of divided parties, if they wanted to maintain their relevance and their importance, they had to work with the government. And so all the things that Juan has said is absolutely right. But this couldn't have happened if you had had entirely united opposition that didn't feel the need to collaborate with the government. Alternatively, you could say that in, say, a European system, having a divided opposition may actually be a disadvantage because you don't have reliable partners. But I think in the Mexican context, it worked out incredibly well. Edna. A mí me gustaría poner en, en discusión la otra perspectiva. La perspectiva del presidente que no ha sido necesariamente exitoso en, en generar eh, cosas concretas para los mexicanos. Por eso tenemos un... un un divorcio entre la perspectiva eh, en el extranjero sobre el, el gobierno del presidente y la perspectiva de los mexicanos, que en, en encuestas de confianza al consumidor, en encuestas sobre aprobación presidencial, muestran una enorme desconfianza. No se han comparado la idea del Mexican Moment. O sea, los mexicanos no la, no, no la han asumido. Eh, y, y creo que... Eh, la economía mexicana el año pasado creció apenas 1%. Eh, se, se estuvo ajustando a lo largo del año la, las proyecciones, las estimaciones de crecimiento. Y este primer trimestre también eh, eh, pinta mal. O sea, no, no parece el presidente tener las mismas capacidades para plantear una agenda de reformas y procesarla legislativamente y para gobernar y generar. Eh, resultados concretos y me parece que este dilema va a estar presente a lo largo de, de eh, no solo el arranque sino su primer, este primer primeros tres años y, y ahí es donde vamos a, a poder dar el calificativo de exitoso o no, si la economía no logra remontar si la aprobación del presidente si la confianza de los mexicanos en el gobierno no mejora entonces pues eh, el, el éxito será muy relativo So, uh, we're down to our last few moments. Um, There are a couple of uh, questions, I think, that we haven't been able to address um, and and may not be able to address before the end of the panel. But, uh, for example, education reform was a huge effort over the last year. Um, Was it enough? Is it going to uh, achieve um, what 
Mexico needs to produce the number of engineers uh, that, that uh, we need for the oil sector or for uh, other areas. Um, also, you know, something that hasn't been clearly defined is Mexico's, um, is some people mentioned in the panel this morning, um, the effect of the border and uh, slow border wait times on the overall, you know, $500 uh, uh, billion dollar NAFTA economy. Um, we hear a lot of talk about smart borders, and we hear a lot of talk about uh, trying to facilitate trade, uh, but we see a huge drag on the border because of um, uh, border wait times. Um, and lastly, uh, there's a question here about um, the... Uh, the, the, the rule of law situation. And I, uh, I think um, what I didn't hear from Edna were the solutions. Um, we passed a reform for, uh, for improving the criminal justice system in 2008, and then we went through five years of, of, of deadly violence uh, and uh, are still uh, not seeing the changes that we, we need to address. Uh, I mean, there are, there are still so many challenges uh, for Mexico looking forward, uh, maybe what I'll just ask each of you to do in the last uh, few seconds is give me your 15 seconds on uh, what the solutions uh, to these problems are. Maybe we'll give you 30 seconds each. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, where, with so many lingering challenges, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where Mexico is headed on some of these, uh, these very complex issues? Uh, and I'll go in reverse order, maybe starting with Edna. Bueno, en el tema de seguridad y la justicia tenemos un reto enorme, enorme. Eh, creo que en los últimos años hemos avanzado en, en la construcción de ciertas capacidades, sobre todo a nivel federal, eh, por lo que creo que pues, podemos ser optimistas. ¿no? Eh, lo que me preocupa es que no esté en la agenda, que no esté en la agenda como una prioridad la construcción de capacidades locales en términos de policías, de ministerios públicos, el sistema penitenciario en México es, es una desgracia, no está en la agenda. Pero creo que en el momento que, que si logramos ponerlo en la lista de prioridades, si logramos eh, eh, pues eh, convocar a los actores políticos, a, ahora sí un pacto a favor de la legalidad y el Estado de Derecho, quizá podamos avanzar. ¿no? Si esta ola de reformas resulta exitosa, ¿por qué no podríamos tener también éxito reformando nuestra justicia. Claire. Um, I think in the same vein in the rule of law and security, um, it's, not, it's not something that's being talked about at the high level, and I don't know whether keeping it at a lower level behind the scenes is, is enough, but I think that the, uh, the money is there and, and the experience um, at, at the state level, some have been more successful than others, and I think um, the challenge now will be to harmonize what was just... Um, you know, passed at the federal level with all these state codes and things. And, and you have a willingness on the part of the U.S. government to help out in, in, in that area. But, but without a partner that's telling you what they want to do, you have, um, you wait a whole year basically to go back to what you were doing to, to begin with under the Calderon government. You know, we're different. We don't want that. We're so, you know, we, maybe some drug courts, you know, we want to do some different stuff, prevention stuff different. But in the, in the end, this is what we want. This is what we agreed to. It looks a whole lot like what you were already doing a year and a half, two years ago. So you have, you have some wasted time, and now you have to have a sense of urgency in order to, to really um, tell the U.S. and tell other donors how you want things to go, what kinds of aid you need, and the U.S. has to be ready to kind of organize it well. And, 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 and to, like you were saying, that your experiences as, as somebody trying to implement these programs hasn't been the best, and, and I don't know 
um, you know, how, how we're ready to be helpful enough to enough states to get this through without watering down what we're doing and, and, and doing enough training in particular areas. Um, very quickly, uh, is the cup half full or is it half empty? I think that's the wrong question. Is the cup more full than it was last year, the year before that? And I think it is. I think the cup is filling. Um, and I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic um, for, for a number of reasons. But I'll give one very local reason, which is I crossed the border this morning going south. And the new facility, the, the border crossing at Chaparral is impressive. The Mexican government did their job. They delivered on time. They put in place a fantastic facility. If the U.S. could do the same thing, we could actually achieve enormous <laughs> savings at the border. Well, I, I have the professional obligation to be an optimist uh, as, uh, as uh, trying to, to sell ideas of public policy in Mexico. I, I'm convinced that the country can change if our institutions can change. And I think the biggest challenge that cuts horizontally all the subjects we have talked about is uh, federalism. We have a very dysfunctional, uh, dysfunctional federalism from public security, from a municipal president investing in the right roads to uh, bring shale and uh, gas. Uh, when, when an American thinks of federalism, he thinks of Jay, Madison, and Hamilton. <laughs> when a Mexican thinks of federalism, we think of Moreira, Andres Garnier, and Juan Sabines, which are some of the not most well-renowned Mexican politicians currently. So if we fix, uh, uh, manage to fix federalism, a lot of things will happen in Mexico. Well, I think we have to leave it there. It's easy to be frustrated uh, and pessimistic in the face of challenges, um, and especially when these are challenges that we would urgently wish to resolve, uh, problems of poverty, problems of insecurity, etc. Uh, what I always uh, like to counsel is that um, an, an idealist is never happy. An idealist is always uh, pessimistic about whether, where things are now because they want things to be so much better. But uh, a realist, a realist has more measured expectations and a longer time horizon and therefore can always be optimistic. Uh, so uh, let's, let's uh, uh, hope that uh, in, in the intermediate term and the long term, uh, Mexico will continue moving forward. Thank you Thank very you. much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.